Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Keystone Corruption, Brad Bumstead. Brad Bumstead, author of Keystone Corruption, a Pennsylvania insider's view of a state gone wrong. You're the insider? I am, indeed. How did you get to be an insider? What's your capacity? Working there 27 years at the state capitol, that got me in the direction of being an insider. Uh, you know, reporters at the capitol mingle with a lot of these people. We, we talk regularly to the legislative leaders and all of that, so you have inside information. It doesn't mean you act as an insider might. Why did you decide to write a book? Well, some of the abuses I saw over the years that took place even before there were charges filed against anybody or any criminal cases, I just thought, you know, how do they get away with this stuff at the state capitol? I mean, you know, not just waste of tax money, but incumbency protection programs, whams, walking around money, just this millions of dollars spent on, on glorifying incumbents so they can win their next election. Uh, all, I saw all that stuff for years and it really bothered me. I thought, is there any way that, that anybody can really stop that? But it wasn't until these criminal charges started falling after bonus gate that um, you, you got a real true picture uh, of what went on there. Is this something that's been a, a, a culture in Pennsylvania politics for forever? Well, it has, and, and one of the themes of the book is the, the um, cyclical nature of corruption. Um, we'll see a wave of corruption, and then things will die down for maybe years, maybe even a decade, uh, and then you're hit with another wave. And I, I believe that, that that happens because people forget about it. It becomes sort of, uh, you know, seems like ancient history to some of the people who are there. And they maybe th- think they'll cross the line here, cross the line there. Next thing you know, they're in trouble. I thought one of the more interesting things was a, a comment that I had from uh, one of the people who was involved in the Computergate case uh, as a witness. He could easily have been a defendant. And he, he, this is on the House Republican side. And he told me that at one point he was asked to do something, and it was in a gray area. So he went there. Then he was asked again to go there. And he got in, and there was even bigger gray area. And he said, finally, I found myself totally in a gray area. Everything was, you know, questionable. And, you know, I think that's what happens to people there after they've been there a long time. Well, is this the, the, the current round of trials and, and people who have been convicted of, of corruption, did they inherit a system that was like that, or did they create a system that was like that? In regard to using public money for campaigns? Yeah, essentially, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I know that for years uh, it, it was accepted practice at the Capitol to do some campaigning out of the state office or with you know, state staff, 
okay? But it was minimal. I mean, it was small stuff. Uh, you would occasionally see a legislator send a staffer over to the election bureau with petitions for filing. Okay, is that, you know, a felony? You know, I don't think so. So small things like that would occur. And from about 2002 on, it just got out of hand. I mean, it just really uh, blew up in a way that, that um, uh, nobody had anticipated, where millions of dollars were then spent uh, to try to uh, keep and retain majority uh, status in the House. Um, there's one portion in the book where Representative John Purzell is on the witness stand, and he says that being in the majority is everything. He said, if you're not in the majority, you might as well not be there. You can't do anything. All the power comes from being in the majority. So that's why they fight so hard and why they used all this money to try to gain that majority status or to keep it. Can you, for people who are not familiar with it, can you explain what the law is? What are they allowed to do and what are they not allowed to do? How do they draw that line between between the campaign and the, the legislative office? Well, I, I think the um, uh, bright line was painted in a case involving former Representative Jeffrey Haybay. And it basically says you, you can't use public resources for campaigns, that if you do, it's theft, and that there's a personal gain involved for someone who, who, who does that. And, um, you know, far be it from me, I'm not an attorney to give you the exact terms of it, but I think you know when you're doing wrong. And, you know, you're not uh, supposed to be doing any campaigning at the Capitol, no fundraising calls there. You're not supposed to use your staff for that. And since these prosecutions, people have been more careful about that. They've, they've used um, uh, outside, you know, professional staff for the campaigns as opposed to, to legislative aides. But, Again, it's cyclical, and I don't have a great deal of hope for the future that everything will be uh, hunky-dory. And there are less bright lines, too, like, um, like newsletters to constituents. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the stuff that's been going on long before any of these cases and still continues to a certain extent. And that is, uh, uh, you know, they have public service announcements where the incumbent will be featured in a TV spot which there's a minimal amount of public service there, but it seems more to glorify the incumbent. News, re news releases and uh, more importantly, the, the um, um, flyers that are sent to constituents' home that usually have you know, multiple colored pictures of the incumbent and, and stories sort of glorifying their, their uh, work at the Capitol when in reality they might be a backbencher. All of that paid for by us. How often would would there be stories when these, the indictments were coming out a couple of years ago that broke that reporters just all knew was happening and couldn't believe it took this long for, for like there are things you know in the newsroom and can't report? Well, there are things you think you know and can't report. Yeah, I mean, you have to be really careful, particularly in criminal cases. You may think you know that someone is under investigation. You've heard that from a couple of different people. But are you going to write that story? It depends what it is, who they are, and who's telling you that. But it's a very difficult thing to do to report on grand jury investigations where it's all secret, takes place behind closed doors. You really don't know what's going on. The only way you can get at some of it is wait outside the grand jury room. And we would do that occasionally where we had a suspicion that maybe so-and-so was going to testify that day then try to talk to them on the way out. Uh, now, prosecutors uh, are not allowed to 
to give out any information about grand jury proceedings. It's against the law. But witnesses who go and testify before a grand jury may tell the press or anyone else what they said. So occasionally you do get that ha to happen. It's very rare, but you do get people who will talk about it. But, you know, we knew that there were numerous investigations going on. They seemed like they took an enormous amount of time. Uh, but uh, in the end, uh, unless there's uh, a search warrant served, as there one, was in one case with the House Democrats, or there are subpoenas, of people being subpoenaed to testify, which there are documents issued by the court or by the, the attorneys, and you can confirm that somebody got a subpoena, there, there's something solid occasionally. Are there also things you would see the, the, the spending of state money and grants given to this person or that person? You have a, a story about a, a former state representative who got a grant for $900,000 for a business and the address was his house. Yes. At times, would you see those and think, what, what is going on here? Oh, yeah. Over the years, we've seen you know, enormous abuses with the whams walking around money. Um, recently, uh, uh, Representative Dwight Evans, when he was House Appropriations Chairman, got a million dollars for a jazz festival uh, in his district. Well, is that a good thing for the people in his district? Yes, I guess so, but it's a pretty good thing for him as well. All of this legal now. Um, but yeah, there have been abuses over the years. There's no question about it. But what legislators say, their defense of this is, look, there are a lot of good programs that come with WAMs. They build softball fields. They take the money back to the communities for community centers, that sort of thing. And that's true. There are a lot of things like that. But the problem always was with WAMs is that who got them and why? In other words, maybe a community got a certain project. Or were they the most needy community in the state to get that? Maybe not. Most likely it's because their legislator had the most clout with leaders or voted a certain way you know, to get that project. What, is walking, what does WAMS mean? WAMS means uh, discretionary money uh, for legislators' pet projects controlled by the legislative leaders. For years and years, the leaders, a block of money would be assigned to them, a certain amount, and, and they would use that and then dole it out to their members uh, who were loyal. If they were disloyal members, didn't vote the way they were supposed to vote, uh, maybe they wouldn't get as much money. So the leaders of each caucus just have sole discretion over, okay, here you go, here's $900,000. They did. They do not now? Uh, I don't believe they do now. Uh, uh, Governor Tom Corbett, when he came in, said there aren't going to be any more whams in any budgets that he signs. And there's still some discretionary money, there's no question about it, but whams in the old form that we knew, I don't believe, uh, are, are there any longer. Now... Governor, former Republican Governor Tom Ridge also said, I'm getting rid of whams. And somehow they came back. So who knows how long this will last. Does the public like whams? Uh, if it's their project, if their community gets the project, I suppose they do. You've been a reporter for 27 years? Much longer than that, 27 years at the Capitol. For Probably. whom? Well, I work for Gannett News Service, a company that owns USA Today um, for the first... Um, 15 or so years that I was there, uh, and then I went to work for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. And what was covering the Capitol like when you started? Well, it was um, different. I think this would apply to the news media in general. Um, we didn't have the Internet. We couldn't look up names or pass stories on the Internet. Uh, you know, 
we didn't see every news release that every group puts out all of a sudden coming in on your computer screen. So now everything is like that. You know, you see all these press statements and all these things that people are saying, and it just, you know, it, it gives all these groups this, uh, you know, room to be able to try to, quote, influence the media through all these statements that somebody's going to bite on one of them and write a story. Whereas in the past, you, you got paper news releases and you could decide what to do with them. Um, but um, I, I think things in the past, too, in the, in the 1980s were more secretive, believe it or not, than they are now. But it was pretty bad then even to try to get certain legislative records. The legislature wasn't covered by the right to know all. Now it barely is. It's covered for spending, but nothing else. But there was a time where they didn't have to give you anything. And that was until, I want to say, five or six years ago. You, you, you mentioned a phrase earlier, computer gate. You also mentioned bonus gate in here. Can you go over a couple of those and what they involved and when they started to break? Sure. Uh, bonus gate was a scheme whereby the House Democratic leadership um, uh, gave bonuses to legislative staff uh, who, who worked on campaigns, not just their campaigns, but uh, special elections, House Democrat campaigns, sometimes even some other local race that, that uh, legislative leaders were interested in. House Democrats, uh, uh, under Mike Vion, when he was uh, the Democratic leader, uh, spent $1.4 million on these bonuses that were secret. They went to different people. And, you know, what was fundamentally wrong with that, aside from the fact that it was, I mean, it was illegal in a lot of different ways, but um, if you went and looked up a legislative staffer's salary, and it appeared that it's $50,000, well, in reality, it might have been $65,000, but you didn't know that because that, that extra supplement wasn't part of the uh, uh, salary list that you would see. Um, so that abuse took place, uh, ramped up over a four or five year period. Uh, Mike Vion was convicted of, of uh, several felonies in regard to that. Um, a lot of people thought that former House Speaker Bill DeWeese uh, should have been implicated in that. He was implicated, but should have been charged in that, but he wasn't. And um, uh, he, he took the Fifth Amendment uh, during Vion's trial, and Vion's lawyers blamed DeWeese uh, for the bonus gate thing, saying, look, he was the top leader. Uh, so DeWeese has always denied that he was involved in that. Um, based on the evidence I've seen and the people I've talked to, I believe that he was aware of it, maybe not controlling it, maybe not aware of every single dollar that went out, but pretty hard to be in his position and not know what's going on. What was illegal about giving the bonuses? Well, the fact that they, they, they weren't part of the, the um, uh, payroll and they were given for political work. So we, you were using bonus, uh, state money, to pay someone for a campaign work. That's what's illegal. Is it, is it legal for a, someone who is a staffer to work on a campaign as a second job? As a second job. I mean, can, can they have a part-time job working for the campaign while still working full-time for the, for the state? That's a good question. I'm not sure about that. I think what we do see is that, that staff will, you know, still work for a legislator's campaign on a volunteer basis to try to help that legislator get elected. And if they do that solely on their own time, solely in evenings, on weekends, 
it's not illegal. They're allowed to do that. And, you know, it's understandable. A legislative staffer would have an interest in seeing their boss get reelected because their job could be on the line. So, and, and they may believe in the policies that that particular legislator is espousing. So they want to see him get elected. Uh, I still don't think it's a good idea to have staff members work on campaigns, even on private time, because then it starts to, it, it could, you could see how it could creep back in and start to get commingled again. Is it hard to get the public to care about this? I mean, is this a finer point of government that, that is just too detailed for the public to get excited about? I think some of it is, but I think that the um, uh, legislative pay raise, uh, middle of the night pay raise that, was, uh, that occurred really ignited the public's interest in this. And it was something that everybody could relate to. Everybody understood how this had been done secretly and without you know, a public hearing. And it outraged a lot of people. And it was the first real re reform movement uh, that, that I've seen in some time. Did so, so the, yes, sometimes they, they can get fired up about it. But other points in all of this may seem obscure. Now, was there anything inherently illegal of the, the pay raise that happened? Because Governor Rendell, when he signed it, said, well, it's legal. That's all, there is, that's all I'll say. He did say that. Um, there was nothing illegal on its face. However, the constitutionality of a legislator getting uh, to be able to collect some of the money during his current term of office um, is certainly uh, um, suspicious in terms of legality. It may be completely illegal. I don't know. But that is what um, happened here where you got the raise and then you were also able to collect it early through something they called unvouchered expenses. So not everybody did it, but you saw over 150 legislators sign up to get the money early, uh, even though they're prohibited from doing that until they're reelected. But they said, well, it's not salary. It's just expenses. Um, so, yes, that, that would be illegal, uh, most likely. Uh, what, what was the press's reaction at the time? Were, were you working when the pay raise happened? And, I was. And was it obvious what they were doing? Yes. I mean, once it happened. Uh, but, but leading up to it, no. I mean, there were maybe two weeks prior to the pay raise where we had an idea. They wanted to do it, that something was going on. There were rumors about it. Rendell even publicly encouraged uh, the legislature to do it at one point. Uh, he, he implied that if they did, uh, you know, uh, he wanted to see approval of some of his social programs and more spending for some of those. Um, so it's like, wow, you know, something is going on here. Uh, but for the most part, the, the bill itself that had the details of the pay raise was not available. It was not only available beforehand during the vote, it wasn't available after the conference committee approved it. I mean, they walked away and everybody's like, well, what are the numbers? What, who's getting a raise? How much of a raise? Nobody knew. So it was, was maddening to a lot of reporters in that respect. And just the way they went about it, uh, this committee of uh, uh, six, uh, a conference committee that approved this, they did it and they got up and they walked away and they wouldn't answer any questions. It's like, well, wait a minute, you, you don't have the bill. You're not telling us what's in it and you won't even explain it. You know, so that that made a lot of people really uh, angry about it. Now, you know, as reporters, we're supposed to keep emotion out of this. And 99.9% .9 of the time, I do, and I think most others do too. You can be very 
um, you know, look at these sort of things just purely from an intellectual standpoint and evaluate them uh, analytically. Uh, but this was such a visceral reaction because the reporters who were there that night witnessed democracy being trampled. And that's a strong statement, but I believe that it's true. When did you start noticing that there was a public reaction to the pay raise? Well, um, shortly afterwards, and I have a line in the book about that, uh, Terry Madonna, who is a uh, um, political analyst uh, uh, for a long period, and we've press has talked to him for a long time about it. I asked him about the end of the first week after the pay raise. Um, what do you think? Do you think there's going to be much reaction to this? And he said, no. He said, the history um, uh, in the past has been that this sort of dies out pretty quickly. And I agreed with him because I had seen that before that there was not much reaction. But what we both didn't take into account was the internet. Things had changed. And all of a sudden, boom, everybody's writing back and forth about this. Web pages were going up. Groups were being formed. I mean, you know, the, the Internet is what really changed the public reaction to the pay raise. What was the, it like covering the public reaction? Uh, it, it was interesting because I had more phone calls and more emails on that than any other topic I've ever covered my whole career. I mean, stuff just came pouring in from readers in Western Pennsylvania, from others, um, some of just pure venomous anger, uh, some suggesting you know, uh, uh, ways to fix the legislature, some suggesting their, their dissatisfaction with the whole place. And look, uh, as a result of that, uh, there were at least 50 new legislators the following cycle. Uh, not all of those had been defeated. Some people just retired uh, rather than face the voters after that vote. But, um, you know, it did result in some major change in terms of the players. Um, after that, there were also numerous reform proposals that, that were brought up and some enacted it and all that. But those changes, while good, were at the periphery of what goes on there, not at the heart of it. If you were to explain to to the general public, just how Harrisburg works, how the legislature works. Can you boil it down? I mean, what is power? How does the leadership work? How do they get power and keep it? Well, the leaders get their power by being elected by the rank-and-file members, much like a union. Um, and uh, as a result, they have this power. And Pennsylvania, for decades, has been a really heavy leadership-driven state. Leaders could pretty much decide anything. They could... They still do, of course, have the power to bring up bills and decide when we're going to vote on certain things. But in the past, they had enormous power, and it was very difficult to challenge any of them if you disagreed for members. Uh, I think that's lessened a good bit, and I think that the, the leaders who are there are cognizant of that and try to be more open with members <clears throat> aware of what had happened in the past. But what makes the place tick? Uh, again, it's, it's power. It's, uh, you know, as Prezell said, it's being in the majority. It's being able to pass your bills. You know, would you want to, if you believe strongly in A, B, C, and D as bills that need to be passed, would you want to be in the minority and just have to sort of go along and you know, hope for the best that maybe somehow one of those might be brought up? Does a minority party have any ability to do anything in Harrisburg? Not much, but Senator Vincent Fumo was one of the rare examples of somebody in the minority party who was able to accomplish an enormous amount. Um, he's a Democrat. He was in the minority party in the Senate. 
uh, and he learned how to use uh, the, the um, confirmation process in the Senate that requires you know, two-thirds vote, uh, not just a simple majority. And he learned how in certain instances, you know, w with enough Democrats, you know, they could block a governor's nominee. So governors eventually had to wind up going through Vince Fumo if they wanted anything in the Senate. Vince Fumo was so powerful that he had uh, uh, Democrats in the House uh, who, who would uh, help him block certain things that he didn't want passed there. They were called Fumocrats. So you know, here, here's a guy who was, was in the, the, the minority and had, he did have all this power. Now he just recently got out of prison um, and uh, is, is uh, confined to his house here for a while. How did he, how did he amass and, and use so much power being in the minority party? Because I know for a time there was, was it 30 Republicans to 20 Democrats, which is a pretty distinct minority, and yet he was able to get things done. Well, confirmation process was just part of it with governors. Others were, you know, deals he might make with other senators. He, he just knew how to leverage things to get what he wanted. Is he just smarter than everybody else at that? He's pretty damn smart. Mm. Uh, you know, it's hard to say smarter than everybody, but, but uh, you know, he was. And, and uh, um, you know, a lot of people were really upset at the 61-month sentence he got for what amounted to misappropriation of over $4 million. They say now, at the time, $3 million at the time of the verdict. And people thought the sentence was too light and the judge let him off the hook. And, you know, he recently got out with good time served. So uh, he's paid his dues. and. He's out now in Philadelphia. Have you done many one-on-one -on -one interviews with him no. over the years? I was on a TV show with him one time where he was, I think it was a Terry Madonna show. It might have been another uh, where I've talked to him. I've been in his office with other reporters uh, as we've interviewed him and, and uh, fascinating figure. What's he like to be around? He, he, he's, um, you know, very congenial and, and he can be very charming and uh, he, he's, you know, helpful to reporters who were there trying to cover an issue. Uh, at the same time, his critics would say he was a bully. Uh, he, 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 you know, he rolled over people to get what he wanted. Um, one of the things that enabled him to uh, amass power, and I, I, in the book I quote uh, the late Al Neary, uh, who'd been a reporter for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette uh, and then did some communications work uh, uh, in Harrisburg. And Neary had the interesting perspective of having been a student of Vince Fumo's when Fumo was a bi biology teacher in Philadelphia. So the, the, here Senator Fumo was his teacher and then Neary came around to being a reporter much later covering him. And he, he knew him and understood him and he said that what Fumo had done over the years, over a long period of time, was amass power by placing people in agencies throughout state government, whether that was FIA, whether that was the Turnpike Commission, he just had people all over. So he could virtually push a button, speed dial, and if he needed something in a particular agency, he most likely would be able to get it, or at least get it rolling, or maybe block it. Was he the same type of political powerhouse in the city of Philadelphia as he was in Harrisburg? I believe so, um, you know, although, you know, when John Purcell was uh, majority leader and speaker, there was always this um, undescribed tension between the two of them and former Governor Rendell uh, as to who, who the, the big guy was in Philadelphia. 
John Prezel, since you brought his name up, what, what is his, uh, who was he, and just bring us up to speed on what was he like as a politician, and what's his story? Uh, Fast-talking former maitre d' from Philadelphia who, who worked extremely hard to get uh, where he did, worked his way up uh, through the Republican caucus to become uh, uh, majority leader, then eventually speaker, and um, he was... Um, uh, Good to be around. He was—he was a good man, I believe. Uh, but he just went astray, and there was this moment that he testified to um, during the trial of former Representative Brett Feese, where he was in New Orleans as they were negotiating a, a contract for computer data for the House Republican Caucus, and a question came up about how you're going to pay for it. And I don't know exactly what the words were at this point, I can't recall, but the, the thrust of it was uh, he never suggested that the taxpayers shouldn't pay for it. Um, and he should, he should have stated, and he realized, should have said, look, this is just campaign, campaign's going to pay for it. But he didn't, and that started the ball rolling where then taxpayers paid for all this other um, uh, campaign data and computer equipment that House Republicans used um, uh, in elections or tried to in some cases. Now, John Prezell had a reputation for being a big fundraiser also, good at raising money. He raised $17 million, he once calculated, um, for uh, his own campaign, uh, the Republican Party, and other House Republicans. And, you know, he was a great fundraiser. Uh, one of the suggestions, I, I, I always wondered why it is that people like, like him would use tax money for certain things when he could raise so much campaign money and had that at his fingertips. And what people have suggested is, well, it's hard to raise campaign money. I mean, you have to make a lot of calls. You have to be willing to convince people to give money. But here, you've got this pot of money sitting there, tax money, just use it, you know. So who knows exactly why, but, but um, I mentioned in the book, and I believe this, that Prezell, I'm betting, believes to this day that he didn't do anything wrong. Uh, a former uh, aide of his told me that John Prezell saw, saw no difference between John Prezell, uh, the candidate, and John Prezell, the elected official. It was all part of the same deal. And that was true for a lot of these guys, but in particular in his case. How many of the people who you cover in the book, in the back page you have eight, mm -hmm. I believe it is eight of the members of the leadership who are in prison as we speak right now. How Say many for Fumo, who got out. It's seven of the eight now. And then some people who are not in leadership who went to jail. Oh, well beyond that page, yes. Um, how many of them said, well, yes, I, I did wrong. I see that uh, I went over the line. And how many of them are just, like, like you said, John Purcell, don't think they did anything wrong? Well, Purcell admitted doing wrong. He pled guilty rather than go to trial. But as usual, I think that was a smart, calculated move on his part. He was a good negotiator. He saw the writing on the wall, and he realized if he pled guilty, he might be able to get a, a two to two and a half year sentence. As opposed, if you're convicted at trial, they tend to throw the book at you for wasting the court's resources and all of that when you were guilty. Um, and uh, you know, I think he saw that coming. And you know, his his wife has some major illness illnesses. And it was a difference between serving two years in prison or maybe five. So he was a very practical politician. So I think he made that decision. Whether or not he really believed that he did anything wrong, 
I don't, I still don't know, and I don't believe that he did. He took responsibility for it, but that's a different thing than saying you did wrong. Another one is Bill DeWeese. Quite a character. Um, uh, one of the, 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 one of my most favorite uh, uh, people in, in the legislature over the years, uh, just because of what a character he was. He was so different, and he was funny, and um, he, he uh, uh, this guy was, a, he was an ex-Marine, who uh, took over the House Democratic leadership in a coup uh, against former Speaker uh, Bob O'Donnell. And, um, you know, Dwight Evans, who we mentioned before in the Wham, was DeWeese's lieutenant to take over the caucus. And for years, at one position or another, DeWeese was, you know, in the top ranks of the Democratic leadership. And um, uh, I heard one legislator say at his trial, um, that when he came in, DeWeese was the best legislator he ever saw. He was really good as a legislator. That you know he could, you know, move with the best of them on, on the floor, and 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 he and he was. And that's the thing about all these guys. They they were very effective legislators. With um, we mentioned Fumo before, the kind of effectiveness he had even in the minority. Uh, these were all very capable legislators who got a lot done in a lot of cases. Um, they just crossed the line. Um, you know, take, um, if you will, uh, uh, Fumo, uh, you know, two of the major bills that he had a huge influence on were gaming and establishing casinos in Pennsylvania. A lot of your viewers may think that's not a great thing, but millions of people go to them and, and enjoy it. And also a transportation bill uh, in 2007 that, that wound up, uh, um, you know, getting annual money for um, the, the, the Turnpike Commission uh, through a series of bond issues and there are many other provisions in it. But, you know, he was uh, a very effective uh, legislator and, and Purzell was. Uh, Purzell helped put the deal together with Governor Rendell uh, for uh, property tax rebates in return for uh, um, gambling and um, that, that uh, um, people now get these checks if they own property I guess every year if you sign up for it you know where you may get you know $150, $200, 250 as, as a rebate on your, your property taxes uh, that's been made light of and, and by some in the sense that uh, the increases you face in increased school district taxes overtake the amount that you get in this rebate. But in any case, it's what Rendell ran on. Um, you know, let, let's approve casino gambling. Let's let's cut property taxes, and Prezel helped him do it. Prezel helped Rendell on a wide variety of other things. Um, he was smart enough to realize that Rendell was a popular mayor of Philadelphia. He, you know, had an enormous amount of influence and constantly fighting with him in Harrisburg would not be good politically in Philadelphia. So he didn't. Was John Purcell, are there other things that, that you and other reporters knew were going on that they didn't get convicted of? Or was that, that using campaign money, using state money to campaign, was that the core of the, the corruption? It was the core of it. Um, there was, we didn't, well, we, we had an idea about this but couldn't write it or prove it. There was in the grand jury presentment against Prezell and the others uh, a, um, uh, an alleged scheme that, that he and uh, his former chief of staff, Brian Presky, had uh, to 
use some of the, the campaign data they had to form a political consulting company and make a lot of money on the side. But the company might have been formed, but not much ever came of it. Do, do you covered the, the whole debate about legalizing gaming. Yes. Was that, when it was passed and implemented, was that done cleanly or was there corruption involved in that too? Um, I don't know that there was corruption involved in it, but, uh, and cleanly is subjective, uh, you know, uh, in terms of when these votes were pushed through. Uh, you know, I remember being at the press conference for uh, the, the celebration over the passage and it was July the 4th and I think it was about four in the morning. So these things got pushed through in the middle of the night. Bill DeWeese represented a district in southwestern Pennsylvania that is very rural. What was it about him that, that those people liked? Well, Bill was um, uh, gregarious. I mean, he, he, he could walk into a room and he would be the center of attention right away. Um, in that sense, was good to be around. Uh, you know, it was funny. Uh, always had a good line and people liked him. Uh, the fact that he was from Greene County didn't really make much difference, uh, you know, other than the fact that, that he eventually got a, a number of prisons for his district in the sense that, you know, a lot of legislators wouldn't want a prison in their district. But if you have a rural county with high unemployment, it's a pretty good thing for a legislator to take a prison there. And he did. He, he was reelected by, by his constituents while he was under indictment? Is yes. Is that right? Yes. He was elected for uh, three, uh, three cycles running where first the, the, the rumors were out about him being investigated and all of that, and he won that election. Um, and uh, um, the second was when he was indicted, um, he won. And, and it, it just, uh, the people in his district didn't care. They loved him anyway. And he was on the ballot the day that he was convicted and sentenced. He became a candidate. Um, oh, on the day he was sentenced, yes. But he had to turn that in. He had to resign shortly before um, he, he, he was sentenced. Have you talked to any of these principal no. characters since they've been in? No. Are you allowed to? Well, you, yes. So that one or two people have gotten interviews um, uh, with Deweese at retreat. Um, uh, but uh, uh, I have not been able to at this point. I tried to communicate with a couple of them without success, but um, um, you know, Deweese uh, was a very fascinating figure. Uh, uh, people liked him personally. Uh, they didn't trust him in a lot of cases. And, you know, I mean, look at how he took power in the first place. It was, it was a coup. I mean, some people would say, you know, if you're, uh, you, 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 you take part in something like that, you know, who, what, what would they do to you if, if they could? You know, so it always created this, this doubt about him. But uh, his whole gambit of uh, uh, trying to still run for the House after he was convicted of a felony just baffled a lot of people. Of like, why would he do this? You knew that he, he, you can't be, you know, a convicted felon and be sworn in as a legislator. You, you just can't do that. But I think what he was hoping was that he could. Uh, uh, get a real speedy appeal and, you know, somehow get the conviction overturned and, and still hold on to his seat. He just wanted to hold on to that seat, but it didn't work out.
What was it that caused all this to unravel? Now, what was, when did it start that, that Bonusgate and Computergate uh, and the, the use of taxpayer money for re-election, when did it start becoming the focus of criminal investigation? Well, January 2007, um, the Harrisburg Patriot News published a front-page story uh, based on a copy of a memo that they had received that uh, told people who received it not to talk about it and suggested that, uh, um, you know, the, the, that there were uh, payments to, to, to people uh, uh, for their service. Thank you for your service. And Jan Murphy and Charlie Thompson started looking into it, and within a short period of time, a day or two after that, that uh, letter surfaced, they were able to write a story that, that questioned the whole process to say that people who didn't, campaign didn't get any bonuses and that people who did got these bonuses and they speculated in that story which I thought was amazingly good considering how little they knew at the time that this could be you know uh, a, a far-ranging scheme that, that could cause a lot of problems for the House Democratic Caucus. Boy they have that right. Tom Corbett was the Attorney General at the time? He was. When did he pick it up? It wasn't long after that, a couple weeks. Um, you know, first, uh, Kevin Harley, who'd been his press secretary then, said that Corbett would conduct an inquiry into it. Based and, on the newspaper reports? Yeah. And he'd, I think he'd received a, a complaint from uh, a new Republican senator, John Eichelberger. Um, and an inquiry is one thing. That can be a low key. You can just ask for some records. But it wasn't long after that, maybe a week or two, that Harley used the word investigation. And then Corbett himself said that he intended to do it investigate all four caucuses of the legislature, House Democrats, House Republicans, Senate Republicans, Senate Democrats. And that's when the investigation began. He subpoenaed some documents initially uh, to look at them, but that's where it took off. But it wasn't until uh, mid-2008 uh, before there were charges filed against uh, um, 12 House Democrats, including Mike Vion, um, two of whom were later acquitted. Can you explain that process? How did, how did he do that? And what exactly is a grand jury? Well, grand jury is a, they use a statewide grand jury in Pennsylvania, which is this um, group of people who meet uh, once a month, I believe it is, uh, maybe for up to a week. And they hear all sorts of, of cases, allegations of, you know, everything from drug dealing to political corruption. And they, they just run all these uh, cases past the grand jury to see if the grand jury wants to issue uh, a presentment, which is basically an indictment. Um, and um, uh, that's what uh, the, the, the grand jury does, uh, but uh, a lot of people who have been through that process are not real you know, confident in the grand jury system because prosecutors, they say, can get a grand jury to do anything they want. Uh, as the expression goes, goes, uh, uh, they, could, they could indict a ham sandwich if they wanted. And it's true that, that, that the prosecutor does guide um, th this grand jury on its path to issuing a presentment. Although there's certainly been cases, not just here but elsewhere, where grand juries have said no. So what was Tom Corbett's role in the whole thing? How well, he, he was overseeing the whole investigation uh, of the caucuses for what at that time appeared to be abuse of bonuses. And it, it turned out that as they moved into the House Republican Caucus, 
we mentioned the charges filed against the House Democrats, when they moved into the House Republican caucus, they didn't really find bonus abuse. But they thought something was hinky with the computer contracts. And then it took an enormously long time to, to develop that case. It was really complex about um, the, the computer contracts and how they used them, how many of the different ones there were, and which ones were for public use, which ones for, for campaigns. Uh, so that really became computer gate, if you will, as opposed to bonus gate. Since, since so many Democrats were indicted in the first round, did, did uh, then Attorney General Corbett feel the need to go after some Republicans? Well, I guess he would say that, that he, he only went after those who deserved it. But uh, politically, sure, uh, former Governor Rendell at one point was railing about the fact that only Democrats had been charged uh, in Corbett's investigation, you know, and where are the Republicans in all of this? And that became a constant, you know, theme, you know, by Corbett's critics of, look, he's, on, he's only doing Democrats. So did he feel compelled then to get some Republicans? Some think so. And so when the, the charges were filed, who were the big names that were? Well, um, uh, we talked about, was per, Fumo per, part of that? No. It was uh, Computergate? No, it was, this was all, this was Republicans. And it was, uh, there were 10 House Republicans charged. And the two biggest names in that were John Purcell, um, uh, the majority leader and former majority whip, uh, Brett Feese. Uh, then a couple of their very top aides, former chief of staffs, and some other mid-level staffers. Um, which reminds me, one thing that distinguished Corbett's investigations and the charges that were filed against these people from corruption cases, let's say, in the 1970s, is that in the past you would see the legislator charged, and that's it. But here they went after staffers, and we've never really seen that before. Um, and, uh, but what the, the, the defense of that, as I understand it, was that, well, these schemes were so complicated, they depended on staff to be able to carry these out, such as in bonus gate. It's not something that Mike Vion could just do all on his own. Uh, so that was part of the, the, the belief. Um, but what that enabled the prosecutors to do was to flip the lower level people and work their way up so that lower level staffers would quickly say, you know, I don't want any part of this. Uh, what's the best deal? And most times they got probation. But they would be willing to testify. And they, they did a lot of that until it just came down to three who finally went to, to trial. And that was uh, uh, Prezell. Feast and Brian Presky, um, uh, former chief of staff to Purcell. And um, um, at, at one point, well, there was another woman involved, a lower level staffer, but uh, at one point, um, uh, Presky, um, uh, um, Purcell uh, pleaded guilty before the trial actually came up, and Presky, during the trial, um, decided that he wanted to plead guilty, and he did, leaving Feast as the only person who was really the target. And, and it was unusual because normally it's the, you, you know, you would see Purcell would be the guy they're going after at trial. In this case, it was Brett Feese who was the target at trial and his, his former assistant, Jill Seaman. They were both convicted. You cover a lot of ground in the, that we haven't talked about yet in your book. And I want to, before we run out of time, touch on some of those. And one of the characters you talk about in your book who was a, a few years earlier is Ernie Priate. Mm -hmm. What should people know about Ernie Priate? Ernie Priate was the um, uh, attorney general and, and uh, 
uh, proud of it, and, and he was one of the more aggressive attorney generals we've ever seen in Pennsylvania. He had amazing credentials to come in and take that office with an Ivy League education and a uh, war hero in Vietnam. And uh, he came in and he, you know, just ran through a lot of cases and was, was prosecuting people, convicting people. Ernie Priet was a very good trial lawyer himself. He, he, he could connect with a jury. Uh, but um, he ran for governor and it looked at one point like he was the front runner among several Republicans running for governor. Uh, Tom Ridge was one of the others. Um, but word came out that there was this um, Pennsylvania Crime Commission investigation of, of Priate for his dealings with um, uh, video poker operators. And that swirled around him for a long time. Ernie led the charge to dismantle the Pennsylvania Crime Commission, which the legislature did. They, went, they believed this attorney general who said, look, this is an outrage. They're, they're insulting Italians. Uh, it's ethnic slurs to look, you know, look at mob people you know, who, who were Italian. Uh, so I, I don't, never quite got that. Um, uh, in fact, to be a made member, you had to be Sicilian. So, uh, but they played it that way, that this was this big smear. Uh, now look, the Pennsylvania Crime Commission may have and probably did um, uh, hurt people with guilt by association uh, stories that they had in their annual reports that you know, so-and-so was connected uh, to the mob. Well, what's that mean? Uh, you know, it doesn't mean they were really involved, but they, maybe they just knew the guy. So there were some problems with it. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But um, finally, the Pennsylvania Crime Commission, before it was disbanded, met and issued a report uh, that, that said that uh, Ernie Priate had taken this campaign money from video poker operators, and the suggestion was that he did that uh, in return for promising to go light on them in prosecutions as attorney general. Um, he vehemently denied that. Uh, the Harrisburg Patriot News played a big role in the investigation. Uh, meanwhile, there was a federal investigation underway. The, the feds finally uh, caught up with Priate on that, um, forced a guilty plea out of him, and he went to prison for mail fraud. Uh, to this day, he would say he was not corrupt, uh, that he didn't do anything in return for video poker operators. He just made a technical mistake. That's what he says. Going back a little bit further, Al Benedict. You say Al Benedict was the best liar I ever met. He was. He got through eight years as Auditor General with a uh, job-selling scandal swirling around him, particularly in his second term. And you know, he, he just told everyone, including me, right to my face, that he, he wasn't involved in anything like that. He never did anything like that. That's just wrong. And he was very convincing about it. And he was very convincing even after his former top aide by the name of John Kerr was convicted uh, at, at trial uh, here in Dauphin County. How did that system work, What's the job this? selling system? Well, you know, if you gave, gave campaign money to, to uh, uh, some bag men for Al Benedict uh, that went to the party or his own campaign funds, they would make sure you got a job through the Auditor General's office, such as a field auditor. Uh, it was so pervasive that at one point um, they discovered that there were some field auditors out in a school doing an audit who couldn't even speak English. Uh, they, they, they were Greek and he had gotten them this job and you know, I mean, so it's you paid, you got a job. It's that simple. 
uh, Al always denied it. Kerr was convicted of a job selling scheme. Everybody thought that the feds will, will flip Kerr and he'll come in and he'll testify against Benedict, that Benedict is in real trouble. Kerr didn't do that right away. I mean, he, he, he didn't, and uh, it seemed like Benedict was off the hook. Uh, but it wasn't until later that um, um, they, the, the feds did convince Kerr to wear a wire and go in and have hours and hours of conversations after he got out with, with Benedict, I guess, reminiscing about old times and all the things they'd done. And Benedict incriminated himself on these tapes. Feds were listening to all of this, and they had enough to indict him on that and a whole bunch of other charges. He pled guilty and went to prison. And uh, it was a shame. He, he was one of the more likable characters, in a way, like Deweese, uh, of all these people that you know I've known over the years. Uh, um, He's a heck of a nice guy to be around, and if you met him when you walked out of here, you would think that guy is, is really something, because he had the, this knack of connecting with people that some politicians have, where they'll look you in the eye, and they listen to you, and it seems like you're the only person in the world to them, and he, he had that knack. And a more recent story is the one with the Ori sisters, uh, Jane Ori, Janine Ori, and Joan Ori Melvin. Can you tell that story? Yes. Um, the title of the chapter in the book is A Family Tragedy, because it really was. I mean, it was uh, amazing to see um, three sisters uh, uh, prosecuted, charged with crimes for political corruption. Um, uh, began with, with a, a raid by the Allegheny County District Attorney's Office on uh, Jane Ory's Senate office. And in there, they found some political materials of some sort. Um, they investigated her, they charged her uh, with using uh, public resources for campaigns. Uh, it was never a great deal of money, unlike Bonusgate and Computergate, where you're dealing with millions. This was, I don't know, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000, maybe more, but, but not an enormous amount of money. And um, uh, the idea was that she had um, uh, used her staff to help her sister, uh, Joan Ori Melvin, in two different races for the Supreme Court, the second of which, Joan Ori Melvin won and became a Supreme Court Justice. She was a sitting Supreme Court Justice when these um, uh, indictments came down, and it was their sister, Janine, who worked as an assistant to Joan Ori Melvin um, a as a judge. You say in your book, for Jane Ori to be charged with crimes was a lot like Mother Teresa being arrested for streetwalking. So it seemed to me, uh, if someone, you know, five years ago had said, give me a list of the ten people in the legislature you think are least likely to ever get in trouble with the law, she would have been on it. I mean, you make mistakes in evaluating people. Uh, some would say it's not mistaken that she was, you know, that this was a, a, a case that shouldn't have been prosecuted. But, hey, a, a, a jury in Allegheny County convicted her. And what happened is that uh, there, there were two trials, and at the... The first trial, a lot of people thought that she had a shot at getting off. Um, but uh, during the trial, they, they brought in some evidence and put it up on a screen, and it showed that documents had been doctored. And these were doctors that were, let's just say, helpful to the defense. So where did these come from? How did they get into evidence? And there's a mistrial declared. A new investigation starts, including an investigation of uh, the documents. 
And when Jane goes to trial again, she gets whacked, uh, not just on the uh, um, staff helping her sister, uh, but having you know forged documents and, and, and putting those in at a trial. And you know, Judge Jeffrey Manning, when he sentenced her, said that was the, the worst part of all of this, and that's why he gave her the sentence that he did, which I believe it's in the back of the book there was two and a half to ten. We're, we're almost out of time, but I, I do want to ask, after going through all of this and covering the legislature for 27 years like you have, is there any reason for optimism? Not much. You think it's just it will continue to be cyclical or any cure for what you write about? Well, there is a cure, but they won't do it uh, because it's against their self-interest. Uh, in the back of the book, you'll, there, there are numerous um, recommendations from different reform groups and people who have watched the legislature. And some of them range from, you know, um, uh, going back to a part-time legislature, um, uh, initiative and referendum where voters can put things on the ballot, uh, reducing the size of the legislature, and um, um, banning any gifts, you know, that they'd be able to receive. But reducing the size, I mean, I mean, excuse me, um, going back to a part-time legislature or somehow initiative and referendum, those are things that take power away from the legislature and also um, remove uh, seats. Uh, people would lose their seats uh, and that sort of thing. It's the kind of thing they would not be enamored of doing. But it would be the kind of thing that, you know, if that happened, that there might be a chance to try to change some of these things. But uh, the way it is, if it just continues, maybe things will be fine for 10 years. I hope it's 20, maybe even longer, but uh, it could slip back again. Well, we're out of time. We've been speaking with Brad Bumstead. He is the author of this book, Keystone Corruption, a Pennsylvania Insider's View of a State Gone Wrong. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.